This morning we are continuing in our time of going through the book of Ruth, and we are beginning our passage this morning at verse 8. We will go from uh, verse 8 of chapter 1 to the end, verse 22, this morning. Again, chapter 1, verses 8 to 22. Now you'll remember that last week we saw that Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law and her sister-in-law Orpah, they all uh, got up to go and leave the country of Moab and to go to Judah, to Bethlehem. And so this morning we pick up where we left off in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me For your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will, will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful, O Lord, for the fact that you have put down your very word in Scripture, that you have written it down for us so that we can read about these happenings in the time of Naomi and Ruth and Orpah some 3,000 years later. And we are thankful, O Lord, that you have given us this portion of your word this morning. This word, which is the bread of life, which we may feed upon. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would nourish our souls this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, in last week's passage, we read about Elimelech and his family, about Naomi and her two sons, Kilion and Malon, and their decision to pack up and to move to Moab. They had heard this rumor that there was harvest in Moab, and they decided to leave the famine of Bethlehem and of Judah and sojourn in a foreign country. And their time of sojourning in Moab was disastrous. Their lives literally fell apart. Naomi was left alone at the end of their time. Her husband passed away, and then later on her two sons, Kilion and Malon, passed away, and she only had her two daughters-in-laws, her two daughters-in-law, her, her daughter Ruth and her daughter uh, Orpah, to give her comfort, these Moabite women. And so the decision was made, we read about it in verses 6 and 7 last week, for uh, them to cut their losses, for Naomi to return to Bethlehem. And this must have been a very emotional decision for her to make. She realizes that she has, in effect, no one to go back to. She realizes that she is leaving the, the relative security of this land to return to her homeland. Well, her time in uh, Moab had come to a bitter end, and Naomi makes clear in this passage that it was indeed a time of bitterness for her. And Naomi Naomi describes what has happened to her in her time in in Moab as, as the hand of the Lord going out against her, the hand of the Lord striking her. She says that, that the Lord brought calamity upon her. And in this description, no matter what we think about what Naomi is saying here and the tone that she might have used, in this description, she is acknowledging the sovereign hand of the Lord. She is confessing that no matter what has happened to her, for good or for ill, that the Lord has ordained it. And this is a very difficult for, uh, uh, an idea, a difficult concept for us to get our minds around. But Naomi recognizes that ultimately God has ordained these events to come to pass. But it is likely, the same as it would be likely for us, it is likely for Naomi, that she is struggling with this fact. That she is struggling with the idea that God could have allowed these things to happen to her. That he could have ordained these things to happen to her. Now, not all of us have had the same circumstances happen to us that Naomi has. We haven't been through these same experiences. We haven't lost a husband or a wife or children. And yet we have all been through difficult times. We have been through circumstances in which we have been tempted to say, Why me, O Lord? Why have you let this happen? And so we can look to this passage and we can look to the hope that the Lord presents to Naomi and to Ruth and we can recognize that this is the same hope that the Lord presents to us. You see, the fact of the matter is that you might never get an answer as to why you have endured pain or loss. You may never know in this life or in the life to come why the Lord has seen fit to have things happen to you which have been tragic and painful. You may never know the answer, but you can trust this. You can trust that the Lord loves his people. The Lord loves you. And whatever comes to pass, he has made it to come to pass for your good, for your benefit, for your growth in grace and knowledge. And so as we consider this passage, I want you to think about this. God graciously empties Naomi 
and us. He empties us of everything that we have, everything that we depend upon, so that he can fill us by his grace. Let me say it again. God graciously empties Naomi and us of everything that we have, that we depend upon, that we rely upon, that is not him, so that he can then turn and fill us by his grace. Well, I've divided this passage into three sections, verses 8 to 14, coming back empty. Coming back empty. Verses 15 to 18, words of faith. And then verses 19 to 22, the promise of harvest. Again, verses 8 to 14, coming back empty. Verses 15 to 18, words of faith. And verses 19 to 22, the promise of harvest. Well, let's look at these verses, these first few verses, verses 8 to 14, coming back empty. We read last week in verses 6 and 7 that Naomi uh, arose with Ruth and Orpah, and they set out to return to Judah. And they must have reached some sort of turning point. Maybe it was a boundary uh, of Moab with the promised land. They reached some point, and Naomi turns, and she addresses Ruth and Orpah, And she tries to convince them to go home. Now obviously Naomi does not want to go to Bethlehem by herself. She doesn't want to go back alone. And these women are the only two members of her family that she has left. But Naomi probably realizes that they have no hope for themselves if they go with her to Bethlehem. There's no future for Moabite women in Israel. They have a future if they go back with her of pain an injury and probably discrimination. Because she knows that they are more likely to find husbands for themselves in Moab than if they go back to Israel, if they go back to a foreign land. And so she kisses them at this boundary, at this, at this turning point. She kisses them and she says goodbye. She sends them on their way. She releases them from any sort of legal obligation that they have to her as, her mother, as their mother-in-law. And she entreats them to go back. <clears throat> But we read in verse 10 that Ruth and Orpah refuse. They say that they will go along with her. They will go with her to her people. But in the next few verses, Naomi reminds them of the bitter reality of what she has experienced. And the bitter reality of what they will experience as women without husbands in an ancient world. As foreign women in Judah, they have very few rights. As foreign women in Judah... They have no husbands to protect them from unscrupulous men who will take advantage of them. But Naomi uses fanciful language to describe the predicament that they will find themselves in. She says she has no sons on the way. She says she's too old to find a husband. And even if she did find a husband and she was to bear children that night, it would be too long for Ruth and Orpah to wait for them to grow up and to become their husbands. And would they wait? Would they want to wait that long? And so she's saying, in effect, no, you've got a better chance to find a husband by going back to your own country. In Naomi's mind, it was a hopeless situation that she was bringing her daughters-in-law into. And it grieved her that the Lord's dealings with her had spilled over into their lives. It grieved her to know that her pain and her tragedy had become their pain and their tragedy. And so at the end of this dialogue, at the end of this, rather, a monologue that Naomi uh, speaks to them, at the end of this they weep and they embrace each other again. They kiss each other again. And Orpah kisses Naomi farewell. But what does Ruth do? 
What does it say Ruth does? Ruth clings to her. She clings to her mother-in-law. She has made it clear that Orpah is under no obligation. Orpah turns away. She goes back. She decides to stick with what she knows. She goes back to her own people and her own gods. But Ruth has come to a different decision here. Verse 14 says that Orpah kissed Naomi, but Ruth clung to her. She wasn't leaving her mother-in-law to return home. She would continue with her into Bethlehem. Now Naomi said back in verse 13 that it was bitter for her that Ruth and Orpah should suffer because of the hand of the Lord going out against her. And Naomi will say, as we'll see in just a few minutes, Naomi will say that when she arrives back in Bethlehem, she tells the women there that that the Lord has uh, dealt bitterly with her. And she asks them to call her bitter. That's That's what the name Mara means. She wants them to call her bitter. Because God has dealt very bitterly with her. She went away full, she says, but she came back empty. And her language in these passages is unvarnished. And it may be tempting to look at this language and see that she is complaining against God. In reality, she is lamenting. And you can see this type of language throughout Scripture. You can see it in the Psalms. You can see it in Lamentations. She's lifting up a lament in front of these women. But even in the midst of this lament, she acknowledges that the Lord is sovereign, that the hand of God is almighty. Naomi has been given a very bitter lot in life. The lines for her have not been cast in pleasant places. But she does not lash out against God. Even though that is what most people in our society would do. Even though that is what we would be tempted to do in similar circumstances. She doesn't lash out. You see, Naomi's time in Moab was a bitter time for her. But that does not mean that she is bitter. And the proof of that is the fact that she is turning back. She is repenting. She is turning to the Lord. She is going back to Him. And to the place which He promised to her her people. And her return is evidence of her faith. She remembers the promises that God has made to His people. She trusts in them. And she turns to the Lord. Let's look at... Verses 15 to 18, words of faith. Presumably, as Ruth clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi points out Orpah's diminishing figure in the distance as she walks away. And Naomi says, go and follow her. Go with your sister-in-law. You see, Orpah has done what is sensible. Orpah has done what is practical. Orpah has made the right decision. She's returned to her people and to her gods. But you see, Ruth has come to a very different decision, hasn't she? She says in verses 16 and 17, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. In light of all of the challenges that Ruth will face in Judah, in light of everything that's before her, Ruth's decision does not make sense. It is impractical. Her best opportunity in life is to go back to her people. The best chance that she has of finding a husband is to find him in Moab, not in Judah, not in Bethlehem. But a change has taken place in Ruth's heart. 
And for her to go back to her people would mean to deny that change. She is giving up everything that she has to follow where the Lord leads her. She is committing her life to the Lord. She is throwing in her lot with Naomi. She is leaving everything of her life in Moab behind her. She is casting it away. Nothing that Naomi, or anyone else for that matter, is going to deter her from this decision to go to Bethlehem, to go to the promised land, to be a part of God's people. She is giving up her home to be with Naomi. She is leaving behind her gods to follow the Lord God. She is forsaking everything because of her faith in Yahweh. And as you read this description, as you listen to her words, you read this description, you begin to realize that she looks a lot like, she sounds an awful lot like this depiction of the true disciple of Jesus that Jesus mentions in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. And at the end of that passage, Jesus says in verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, these are hard words. But Ruth is not looking back. She has put her hand to the plow and she is going forward. And she will not be deterred. You see, Ruth shows her fitness for the kingdom and her unswerving devotion to God and to Naomi. She even calls down curses upon herself if she fails to do what she has said. She says, may the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She has truly committed her life to the God of Israel. And she is not looking back. Now Naomi had no idea that the famine that drove her family from Bethlehem to Moab would result in even more suffering for her. She had the hope that when she went from Bethlehem, that things would get better. And she could not imagine the pain that she would endure in losing her husband and losing her two sons. But look at how the hand of the Lord has reached through her troubles, has reached through her suffering. Look how the hand of the Lord has brought uh, Ruth to faith. And how could we say that it has not been worth it? How could we say that it is not worth it that one person should come to faith? It is hard to overestimate. It is hard to overestimate. Estimate God's ability to use the suffering in your life and in my life to bring others to faith in Christ. You see it again and again. You see it in the hospital when believers are going through the worst of physical conditions. You see how their faith gives them joy. And these healthcare workers who do not know the Lord are amazed that someone who is suffering from cancer or worse can have the joy that they have. And it's a strong testament to the work that the Lord does in our hearts, that we can have joy. People see our sadness, they see our grief when we suffer, but they see our joy and our hope. And for many people, that is irresistible. They want part of it. They want to experience it. Because we do not grieve like those who do not have faith. We trust in the Lord. And the Lord will use us to call others to faith. Well, let's turn and look at verses 19 to 22, the promise of a harvest. After after Ruth's confession of loyalty to Naomi and to the Lord, Naomi realizes that she can do nothing to turn Ruth away, and so she stays silent. She gives up, and they head on back to the promised land. 
And verses 19 to 22 describe Naomi and Ruth's return to Bethlehem. Verse 19 says that the whole town was stirred because of them. Naomi had been away a long time. She's hard to recognize. They don't, they don't recognize her. She's probably different in appearance. Stress and strife and tragedy has changed the way she looks. And so they say, is this Naomi? And how does Naomi respond? She says in verses 20 to 21, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? After more than a decade away, at least a decade away from her hometown, these are the first recorded words out of Naomi's mouth. Not joy, not happiness, but the bitter reality of what her life was like in Moab. And how could they not be her first words after what she has experienced? Naomi's life was was marked by tragedy, the tragedy that she endured in Moab. Now these women of Bethlehem, they would have remembered that when she left, she left with her husband. She left with her two sons. And in response to the unasked question of what happened, Naomi tells them not to call her Naomi, which means pleasant, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. And that's all she needs to say, isn't it? When she says these words and they recognize that her husband is not with her, her sons are not with her, that's all she needs to say. And presumably these women wept with her. They shared in her agony. And it is true, Naomi's life in Moab was not pleasant. She went away full, she says, but the Lord brought her back empty. She went away with a husband and two sons and came back with none. Her husband, Elimelech, had no heir to carry out the family name. Naomi had no possessions and no one to protect her from harm. It was indeed a bitter time for Naomi. Who can blame her for saying these words? And yet in the midst of this lament with these women, she once again acknowledges the sovereign hand of the Lord in all of this. She says the Almighty has dealt bitterly with her. The Lord has brought her back empty. She says the Lord has testified against her and brought calamity down upon her. She understands that God is Almighty. But this doesn't necessarily make it less painful for her. And you see, her words, when she speaks to these women, they give no hope. They give no hint of hope. They only offer the grim reality of Naomi's experience in Moab. And yet, and yet, the author, whoever he was, the author says that she's back in Bethlehem. Naomi may not give a hint to hope, but the author does. She has returned. She has repented. She has come back. And she is not alone. She has not been left empty. Ruth has come back with her. And even though she has just commanded the women of Bethlehem to call her Mara, that name is never used again in this book. It is not used of her. When she is referred to by other people in Bethlehem, they don't call her Mara, they call her Naomi. They continue to call her by the name which she was originally given. And Naomi at this point in the narrative may not realize it, But her return with Ruth to Bethlehem marks the beginning of a very dramatic change for her. 
And you all know the outcome of the story. You've all read through this book. And if you haven't read through it recently, I commend you to do it. Finish it out. But you will see that this is the mark of the, ch- the turning point. Things do get better. The Lord pours down his blessings upon Naomi and upon Ruth. And the last sentence of chapter 1 gives that hint. It gives that hint to Naomi's future hope. It says, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They came at a time of harvest. They left in a time of famine. They came back in a time of harvest. And the rest of the book, the rest of, of the book of Ruth, takes place during this barley harvest. And in the rest of this book, you see, they are overwhelmed with the goodness that God pours down upon them through this man, Boaz, who Ruth will meet. Naomi's hope in the Lord and her trust in the promises of God have not been in vain. She did not know and she cro- until she crossed into the land, into, past the fields in Judah, whether this rumor of harvest, whether this rumor that the Lord had visited his people was true. But her hope had not been in vain. The Lord fulfilled his promises. And these women, Ruth and Naomi, they have returned. Isn't it interesting that the scripture says that Ruth returned. Ruth had never been to Judah. She'd never been to Bethlehem. She returned. Again, it's that same word that's used over and over in the Old Testament for repentance. Naomi and Ruth had repented and had turned to the Lord. And so for Ruth, this was her true homecoming. She was coming home to be with the people of God. This was her homeland. And she was brought into the household of faith. And if you need evidence of that, read the genealogy at the end. Read the genealogy of Matthew and of Luke. Ruth was made a part of God's people because of their faith. You see, God has brought them through famine and through tragedy, and now he is bringing them into a time of great harvest. And this harvest will come to, will never come to an end. They have come back empty. But soon, very soon, they will be full. Well, it is very hard to see grace in tragedy, isn't it? It's very difficult to see grace in your life when you are hurting, when you are in pain. When your child is suffering, how could you describe that as a gracious act from God? But if you are in the household of faith, and if the Lord uses it to bring you or to to bring a loved one to repentance, it is gracious. If you are already in the household of faith and you are suffering, it is a gracious act of the Lord. He will use it. He may not use it in your life. He certainly will, but He will use it in other people's lives. He draws those who are outside of the household of faith, to the household of faith. And he uses our sufferings to accomplish it. What if God hadn't driven Elimelech and Naomi to Moab? What if Naomi had not lost her husband and her two sons? What would have happened? Where would Ruth be at this point? For those who believe in Jesus, for those who will believe in Jesus, at some future point, God's grace is at work in their tragedy and in their hardships. Now, we may not be able to see His gracious hand. We may not know what is going on. We may cry out like Naomi and lament the course of our lives. 
But it is always better to be dealt a heavy blow by the hand of the Lord than to sit outside the house of the Lord. It is always better to be crushed by God's grace than to feel His eternal wrath. And the most tragic and violent event in history, Jesus Christ dying on the cross, was one of supreme grace, wasn't it? None of us would say this was a a terrible thing that should have never happened. Of course it should have happened. We would have no hope without Christ Jesus dying on the cross, dying in your place and in my place. Yes, it was tragic, but it was gracious at the same time. And if anyone had a right to cry out, to cry out about the way that the Lord had, been, had dealt with him, it was Jesus Christ. He had a right to cry out in bitterness. And he did. He did cry out. He said, Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me to your wrath? He cried out in our place. He cried out on our behalf. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never have to utter those words. The Lord has promised He will never leave you nor forsake you. He forsook His Son so that you would not have to be forsaken. And yet we understand and we know that even though this was a tragic and painful death for the Lord Jesus, He did it willingly. Jesus says He gave up His life willingly. No one killed him. He, he did it of his own, his own self. He willingly endured the wrath of his father for the sins of you and me. He gave up his life so that people like Naomi and Ruth and you and I could experience his abundant grace. And the only requirement, the only thing that is asked of us, the only thing that was asked of Ruth and Naomi was to repent of our sins and to believe. That's it. Sometimes God's grace is painful. Sometimes it is unpleasant. Often he brings us to the point of complete and utter emptiness. He brings us to the end of ourselves. But he does it so that we can see how much he loves us. So that we can feel his abiding grace. That we can know grace in abundance. And be blessed by the hand of the Lord. It is far better to endure pain and tragedy from the hand of the Lord and still enter his house than it is to live a life of ease and comfort and never make it through the gates. And this is cause for rejoicing for those who are in the house of God. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we indeed do rejoice. And we are thankful to you that you have seen fit to call us to yourselves, that you have used means, which in many cases have been painful, to bring about repentance and faith. But we thank you, O Lord. We would rather be in your courts than outside. We thank you for your grace, even during the times when it hurts. We thank you especially for the Lord Jesus, who endured your wrath so that we might know your love and your mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.